If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rantnap Productions, which is me. I'm your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today our guest is Annalisa Bruner, writer, editor, and great granddaughter of Mary E. Jones Parish, whose first hand account of the 1921 race massacre was recently published publicly for the first time. We talked to Annalisa about how she learned her great-grandmother's story, how we all process trauma differently, and we muse about how all our clothes seem to have shrunk over the last year. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Annalisa Bruner on the podcast today. Hello. Hi there. So for our listeners who will be hearing this in like mid-June, you were here in town at the end of May for our centennial commemoration of the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And you are, you were there to talk about your great-grandmother's book about, which the more I read about, the, the book had been mentioned to me a couple of times in, in my research and reading the commission report. But it was, what was interesting was that I didn't realize she was sent back afterwards to do interviews like a journalist would be and but the more the the most interesting question to me to start with is everyone in all the interviews with you they talked about you didn't know anything about this you didn't know your family's connection to this didn't know this thing had happened until you were given this book by your father in in your mid-30s now a lot of people in Oklahoma have a similar story about when they first heard about what was called the Tulsa Race Ride, which is now called the Tulsa Race Massacre, appropriately. What, this is a very hard question to both ask and answer, but at that moment, when you learned this horrible thing had happened, what was your first feeling? I would say that I was 
shocked. I knew about the kinds of racial violence that has taken place in this country for centuries, of course. But I had not, of course, because this was unprecedented, expected that there would have been an act of utter warfare, basically, unleashed on citizens of the United States of America within its very own borders. So it was a a shocking realization. It was farther along the continuum of racially animated violence than I had ever really gone before in terms of what I learned about our own history here in our country. And one of the things that occurred to me when I actually had the opportunity to sit down and read all the way through was to begin to have a deeper understanding about my grandmother's life in San Francisco and some of the chaos that she exhibited and endured along with some of the effects of her own coping with all of this as a, as the family member, as the mother of my father and his brother. There was a lot of disruption and there were a lot of questions about exactly what happened between her and her husband in Oklahoma, how they ended up in San Francisco at different times, what happened in terms of my father and his brother actually ultimately being raised by his grandmother on the other side. And when you're uh, growing up in a family, and my family, my parents were divorced. When you're growing up in a family and there is no conversation around these things, it's like a huge disjointed puzzle. And some of it just doesn't make sense because no one's explaining it to you. But as an adult, when I found out about all of this, it seemed like a key of some kind. It didn't explain everything, but it certainly was a critical piece in terms of understanding some of the difficulties that, that I would say now were symptomatic of uh, probably post-traumatic stress disorder for my grandmother, who was the small child in the book in the beginning, who alerts her mother that there are men outside with guns. And so, yes, it is, there's some processing that's required. It's not particularly difficult to talk about, but because it's really cathartic more so than anything, to be able to have an explanation, something that, although difficult to piece together, there, it does have its own logic. There is, there's a reason. And that is always uh, helpful, I think, when you're looking back over things that, as you were coming through them, seemed completely incomprehensible. And to ultimately begin to put together some pieces that, that give you some answers uh, that are a little more satisfactory than some of the imaginings or, that you may have had or things that other people have told you. And to be able to look at some of these things through um, a critical lens. Having read this this firsthand account, what parallels do you see between the racial violence of the tw- 1920s as you see in today's climate? 
the degree is not the same at this point in time, but some of the, the motivators remain the same. Some of the official response remains the same. Some of the uneven application of law enforcement remains the same in terms of how they deal with one group of people versus how they deal with another group of people who are engaging in civil disobedience or whatever. And so the paradigm and the framework continue to move forward. And we have not done the necessary work. We've done some work. But that has been primarily, I think, driven by those who have been the targets of much of the racial animus and the, and the discriminatory ideology. And I think that conversation needs to change a little bit in terms of who needs to be at the forefront of helping white people get themselves together. Because it's, I think other people understand that should this system fall apart, all of this nonsense about the second civil war and all of these, this worshiping of guns and so forth, we know that this would mean for us, it just would mean slaughter. There's <laughs> just no other way to think about it. And I, whenever I read that anywhere or hear, and I, I, I listen to some things that one might not expect me to listen to, but I, I, as much as I can just to be aware of what some of that chatter is like. And when people are using that term, the second civil war, they're talking about a, a mass slaughter. And they're just, it, it, there would be nothing uh, even remotely equal about that. And so I look to leadership from our white compatriots to address the community in which they find themselves within their families and so forth to try to help them to think about what something like that would look like and what it would mean in terms of what it would say about us as a democratic nation, a democratic republic, and to do some serious soul searching about that. Is, is anyone really willing to sit by and, and let these, you know, the mob forces, the same thing that Mary Jones Parrish talked about and that we saw at the Capitol on January 6th? And, and let the lawmakers and, and people in power continue to push an agenda that encourages that kind of chaos and that kind of threat to the things that we hold dear, our institutions, which do seem to be eroding. So it's very, it's a very frightening time. And it certainly feels like there are parallels between people in Congress pushing to not investigate the insurrection on January 6th and what happened in many race massacres, but especially in Tulsa, in covering it up so that most people didn't know, to, similar to what Jesse said and what you said, until they were in their 30s. And some people of every age didn't find out about it until the Watchmen series, TV series came out a couple of years ago. That was the first time a lot of people learned about it. That's really an indictment of our system that something like this could happen and that people could be so privileged that they could suppress the information and continue on with impunity and, and to never pay any criminal or social cost for carrying out these activities. Now, if they thought that it was okay, why wouldn't they let it be known? There were people who 
were in front of the po- the pic- the uh, cameras and so forth, taking postcard pictures. And th- but that's always been the case with these lynching activities, these lynching bees, these lynching picnics, these lynching entertainments, these lynching spectacles, these lynching exhibitions, whatever you want to call it. But there is a difference between those who would celebrate and, and desire to be seen to be part of this and those who, and, and I'm not saying they're better, but those who are act, do, did or do actively work to hide their participation. I, I don't know what the, the psychological boundary is between those groups of people, but these are repeating patterns. We, we, do, we have seen this before. So when we see these postcards, it's chilling. But I think those are the people who, you know, they're, they're just morally lost. It, it's hard to imagine. So you're saying like the people who felt shame about what they had done afterwards, there's not that they are redeemable, but there is something still human about them because they real, they, they're not advertising that they've done a horrible thing. They got wrapped up in a horrible thing and now realize uh, I should not have done that. The others are now. human too, but the, the, those people are just more moral because we have to get out of this habit of saying these people are not human. They are. This is our, and it's almost, it's our animal nature and it's very primitive. But at the same time, we say to ourselves that we are an enlightened species and so forth. That takes work, just like we see with our democracy. It takes work. It takes work to be a civilized person. It really does. And um, I think that people in this country have become very lazy about it, about democracy, about enlightenment. We just feel like we've arrived and there's nothing else for us to do. Well, we are sadly mistaken. And we really need to collect ourselves around these moral questions of people doing wrong with impunity. And why is it even a question that we have to investigate who these people are who came up to the Capitol five miles from my house, who came up to the Capitol to stop the voter certification of the president-elect? and erected a a gallows on the grounds of the Capitol, chanted all these kinds of incendiary slogans, and then at the same time, actually ended up killing someone. So this is, we have to take pause when there is a substantial part of our, of, of the public who continues to cheer this on and, or who, uh, feels justified in saying that there's nothing here to see. It's outrageous. It's morally outrageous. I saw in an interview that you said you don't like to use the term white supremacy. You like to use the the term white primacy. Can you talk about that? I think supremacy, it can be convoluted into something else. And it lets people think that those who are the victims of that ideology somehow have accepted the superiority of a particular group. And yeah, white primacy, it just means I want to be first always. (laughs) Yeah, I find to be a much simpler idea to just for my brain to understand. It's not about an actual judging of who is better. It's we just want to be first. We just want to be first. And no matter the cost to any other person. I think about what Rick Santorum said about Native American culture and how that's not a significant part of American culture without the furtherance of that, taking that thought further, where it's, well, if that indeed is the case, 
why is that the case? And to be so morally obtuse to sit to say something like that when we know that genocide is the reason why we don't have more of a presence. A the blood is still here, of course, but a more of a, a solid cultural presence and so forth. Just I, I'm not sure that he was blind. It's just like these people don't care. And and when you don't care, you can do anything to any other human being and morally justify it. Or the justification that these people engage in is it's mind boggling. Yeah, it feels like almost every day I learn more about our history and the impact that different minority groups had on it and how for most of my life that was hidden or whitewashed, frankly. A good example, we just had uh, Memorial Day and learning that Memorial Day was really, the first Memorial Day was a group of former slaves that dug up a mass grave of um, soldiers to bury them individually and honor them for helping free them. And that's why we have Memorial Day. But the fact that, that we don't even talk about the fact that's where it was from. Everyone just assumes it's a military holiday that we've always had. And that, I don't know what his rank was, that military, that service person, an officer who was speaking about that in Ohio. And the people just cut his microphone off just in the middle of his conversation, middle of his speech. They had asked him to remove it and he refused. Like it's a game. These things are not games. These are things that shape how people think and how they think it's okay to behave. And I think what what the former president did was we've always had simmering tensions and we, we all have to figure out how to navigate that all the time in many spaces. It's easier for some people than for others, particularly if you're on the top. But he just took the lid off of it. And I, I, I don't know how easy it's going to be to get that back under control, some type of control. Certainly, we can't just ignore it. And one of the things that I like about being within these kinds of conversations is that some of us are trying to do the work that it takes to get ourselves healed. I'm not going to say back where we were because we were not correct. And that's why all of this stuff is there that is available for bubbling over. We need some healing as a nation. And I think that in many ways, it mirrors what you do when you're looking for personal healing. You have to talk about things. They, there can't be secrets. I and mean, there certainly can't be secrets that someone else has is making you keep. And that is, ugh, that's what, that is what happened with Tulsa. And so we still have these festering arguments a hundred years later. When will we learn? When will we learn? And then we have at the University of North Carolina, Nicole Hannah-Jones, first of all, being offered a tenured um, chair and some vocal people who didn't like some historical work that she did, work on history that she did, pulling the plug on her and just saying, your tenure is not going forward and we're going to bring pressure to bear because we have that kind of power. And power, too much power is concentrated in the hands of too few people. And what are we going to do about that? Because human beings, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And these people are absolutely drunk with their own power. 
this visit to Telso. It, was it your first visit here? Absolutely. I never visited when my father was alive. Nothing. I think all of our listeners would love to hear that was Telsa edits. I don't even know how to describe what that view of Telsa would be, but what did you think of Telsa while you were here? I grew up in San Francisco and I live in Washington, D.C. And I actually met some relatives of mine for the very first time, not on the Jones Parish side, on, on the Bruner Hawkins side, but much slower paced and a, a vibrant core. And there are a lot of people there with purpose. And I liked that a lot. But of course, those were the people that I was going to meet because of the time and also because of my reason for being there. I don't think I had a real opportunity to get out and meet folks without this kind of predefined narrative, if you will. And frankly, I spent a lot of time in my hotel room talking on Zoom calls (laughs) and (laughs) giving interviews and just trying to let people know as much as possible about how important the the work uh, is that my great-grandmother did and how incredibly proud I am to be part of this project with Trinity University Press. They're really, they were really great to me. What, uh, well, what hotel were you at? Uh, at the Ambassador. Hey, okay, good. Anyway, for our listeners, one of our co-hosts is married to someone who is the, was the general manager of the Ambassador. She got promoted. <laughs> oh, okay. But it's a, it's, a, it's the only hotel we will ever recommend on this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> Gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It seems like too often that America is quick to move on to things like this. A lot of energy goes into it. And then, as Jesse said, everybody leaves town and the majority of the consciousness of America moves on. And I know this is only, it was a horrific event, but it's only one event in a pretty horrific history of racial violence for America. So I always wonder how, how do you feed off the momentum of something like this and keep people from going back to sleep on on these type of events? That's a great question, particularly because President Biden came down there. And that was that really added a lot of gravitas to this whole conversation. People can nitpick about what he said and what he didn't say and all that kind of thing. But symbolically for me, for Merrick Attorney General Garland to come down as his first official visit during his tenure and then for before the commemoration and then afterward for President Biden to come. I think that it is an indication absolutely that the huge ship of state is does have an eye on this. And I do think that it will continue to be something that needs to be worked on. We have no answers. The day I was leaving, I did stop by the, the cemetery, Oaklawn. And a reporter asked me a few questions, but it was, it was very sobering. It was real grounded. It was like, this is real. It is something for which we, we could find forensic evidence. And I feel like uh, that the book that my great grandmother wrote that we republished provides evidentiary uh, grounding. And so we are, there are some still new and different things that are happening around this issue, new things to discover, new things to help us continue to think about this in a very full way. And I I don't know if that's because it has taken so long and we now have so many ways to communicate with one another. And like you said, this really blew up. It, It was an incredible time to be there. 
And yes, certainly it's natural. Momentum will fall off. But I, I think that there is a, a deep commitment to this, both inside Tulsa and as people continue to discover this around the country. I've said this before, and I really truly believe this. Because Tulsa is a finite event, it's incomprehensible that this could have happened, but it is also well de- had a well-defined beginning and end. So looking at this provides us with a crucible through which we can understand and grasp and talk about and, and dissect in a real, in a way that you can really, that the mind can really handle what happened and how, and what that means for our racial dynamics in our country. And I think it's critical that this movement that's afoot now to say history can't be taught to children in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable or guilty. But that, of course, is a blind because there are ways to teach people things that they don't assign blame, but they tell you that as a human being, you have some responsibility here to do something about it. This business that Mayor Bynum said about should people be punished for things that criminals did a long time ago? Is it really punishment or is it an opportunity to do something about it? When you have people talking about they don't want race things taught in school, okay, come up with a solution because the people are trying to do this who want to prevent these events from happening again. Where's the solution that you want to offer? So it's disingenuous, in my opinion, for people to grab on to this notion about, oh, we don't want people to feel bad or we want to punish people. They your paradigm needs to change. And we can, I think our conversations can help people think about it in a way that can be enlightening and and move us forward and help people of goodwill to understand. Some people are just, just put them on the back of the bus and, and let's just keep driving because they are, they're not coming along willingly at all. They're not interested. It's definitely hard when you're talking about white, white premacy, you, what you realize is, someone who isn't really that engaged with what they learn and the world they live in, especially if they're a white person in America, if they are not in any way primed for the idea that all the things they've been told in their life are technically not true, I could see why people would react the way they do. It's mind shattering. They are not as mentally prepared as minority groups in America are for the fact that people generally in America live a lie of their own past, right? Of how and when their families got here, how they were treated, why they moved from place to place. And a very particular case about this was, it wasn't until this commemoration week that I really actually thought about the fact that families, of course, would have left afterwards and would have never come back. That's what I would have done. But I wasn't thinking about how those people were either disconnected or connected to Tulsa to Greenwood to the fact that it was easier to know about the Tulsa race massacre outside of Oklahoma than it was inside and what those people think about what Tulsa has done since then. And that was just one of those things where I was so focused on here that logical thoughts I would have had, I didn't have because I didn't, I wasn't forced to think about them. You bring up a really good point because I, for me, there were things that I began to think about differently. And, and I think that's what happens when you travel someplace and when you talk to new people or when different people ask you questions. I have expanded my thinking through the questions that people ask me. What was really striking to me about the testimony that uh, Mother Viola Fletcher gave before Congress was her, her sensory descriptions. 
and really thinking about what does that do to a child? The, the sounds, the smells, the sights, you know, uh, that gunfire, this is terrifying. And then, and people literally being killed before your eyes, perhaps you have to step over someone as you're fleeing. It, it's really a visceral experience when you hear someone describe what they've lived through and then through your own human emotional system, whatever it is, you begin to understand how people must have felt. And certainly there were people who, this was their home, they weren't leaving. Others were like, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. Others were like, okay, I'm gonna stay here for a while. But then it was like, this is unbearable. And they leave 10 or 20 years later, but the root cause is the same. It's like, this is just, it's suffocating. I was just thinking uh, today about those who stayed and rebuilt better than it was before, who had to interact with the people who had burned it down the first time. I, I don't know how often, but enough. And what that must have felt like, both a sense of pride and shame and fear that they had to live the rest of their lives with as they were trying to rebuild on what was their home that had been destroyed right in front of them. Can you imagine the sense of despair and helplessness, the fear that something like this could happen again. I, I just heard a lot of platitudes about why people didn't talk about this. One of them, okay, the business about being fearful and, and being pressured not to say anything, that is absolutely, that's completely credible. This business about they didn't want to tell their children and burden children with it. Okay, yes, maybe yes, maybe no. That is, you know, to me, a little bit more murky when I think about that. But for me, the reason, one of the primary reasons I would imagine that people didn't talk about it was, you mentioned a good word, shame, because, you know, we are a society that blames victims. But also, if you are in a position where something horrible has happened, you have zero power to do anything about it. You personally cannot hold anyone accountable. You are not going to get restitution. I imagine some people didn't just shut down and didn't talk about it because they just didn't want to go crazy. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that, wouldn't that just make you insane? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that make you a crazy person? Yeah. Standing out on the street, ranting or something? Can you imagine? Yeah. And some of the stories of the you know lawyers that brought lawsuits were in front of judges who were involved in the actual massacre so how how can you ever hope to get justice when the people running the justice system were the same people who caused the destruction that now you're trying to get either reparations or restitutions for and and now i mean i i don't know that we know what percentage but we know that there there are likely people in the current city government who were also descendants of the people who perpetrated the massacre and whether they know that their descendants are not, we know that they're doing their best to stop any formal restitutions for the survivors and the descendants. Absolutely. And to Jesse's point, this business about victimhood, if there's a victim, there's always a perpetrator. And it's the perpetrator that I feel that we should be focusing on, doing a little bit more research to find out who are the perpetrators. And those people are still there. Some of them still have those people's belongings in their attic. Come on now. We know they do. And they know. So I would. what I would like to see is a little bit more digging 
about though into into finding out and naming not just the victims but the perpetrators because the perpetrator that's always where that's always where the money resides <laughs> yeah yeah right? i mean there's yeah the amount of artifacts from 100 years ago are eventually going to get going to get out and we're going to find out who has them cuz eventually someone is going to someone in that family is going to be like okay this is wrong i'm going to give this to somebody because it should not be it should not be here and that'll be an interesting conversation to have when that happens absolutely so this is obviously a very heavy subject and i'm curious when you were reading your great grandmother's book was there anything in there that 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 brought you maybe some une- unexpected joy or something you learned about your great grandmother that that kind of not necessarily made up for this horrible story you're learning about but gave you a little bit of hope or gave you a little bit of joy it, there was something that just told me who she was as a person and when she said that when they were in these camps people had to have these identity cards which of course are reminiscent of the slave passes that um, slaves enslaved people had to carry to go from plantation to plantation in order to visit family members or whatever, carry out some of the enslavers' business or whatever. Also very reminiscent of apartheid South Africa, where colored people and black people had to have um, identity cards at all times. But in her case, It was an opportunity when she was talking about needing to get this card, she was puzzled and a little bit in a quandary because she said, what am I going to do? Because you have to have a white person for whom you have worked to vouch for you. And she says, I've never worked for a white person in my life. What am I to do? So it was just really interesting. I think she was, it seemed like she was proud of that fact of that she had always earned an independent living and she was a businesswoman. Uh, she was a trained stenographer, typist, shorthand person. So she had all of these skills that she used to, as she said, within reason, buy whatever she wanted at her discretion. And so that was very empowering, as a matter of fact. She uh, doesn't seem to have been with her husband, I don't know, after maybe the very early 20s. I, I'm not really sure. I don't know that person at all or anything about him. But she was industrious and she was intrepid and uh, resourceful and hardworking. And that was very gratifying to learn. Do you know when your family left, when that side of the family left Oklahoma? I know when my grandmother left. My grandmother, who was seven at the time of the massacre, when my father was born, they were living in Wewoka. And I know on the 1940 census, their little family was in Wewoka. And uh, that would have been my grandmother, Florence Mary Parrish Bruner, my grandfather, William Bruner Sr., my father, William Bruner Jr., and his little brother, Richard Harrison Bruner. By 1945, I do know that my grandmother and grandfather were in San Francisco because he had shipped out from San Francisco and was killed in 1945 in Burma. Three years later, he was, his body was repatriated three years later. And I know that they had that they went back and forth. And I think that my father said, he said, I think my dad had already left going to the service and then going out to California. And then he said, my mom went out after him. And 
So there was movement and so forth. So it would have been sometime between 1940 and 1945. I'm not sure of the exact dates, but my grandmother went out first and my father actually was raised in Tulsa by his paternal grandmother. And uh, she lived on North Hartford Street or something. She had a boarding house there. I think they went to Santa Monica Catholic Church. This is what I've been told. So my father was a child and, and a teenager in, in Greenwood, even though his, his parents were out in California doing whatever. Well, until my grandfather was killed. That's, a, that's an interesting family journey there. You would, th- you know, again, like I'm a historian, I should know better than this, but my assumption would be the people who are going to leave were going to leave very soon afterwards and the people who are going to stay were going to stay. But obviously some people were going to stay move a little farther away and then move away. No one does everything at the same time. Yeah. So yeah, we all we all experience trauma differently and I think this is a good example of that you have the people who immediately were like, "Well, I'm never leaving. I'm going to I'm going to live here forever even if I have to stay in a tent where my old shop was. You're never getting rid of me." To pe- yeah, people who left but, immediately. But my my grandmother was a child though. So she right. her mother decided she was going to be there mm-hmm. and but then she, in her 20s she left. Yeah. But I mean, even then, I mean, I imagine the the way she experienced that trauma is going to be wildly different than many other people. People say this often, but I'm not sure that people really believe this. Everybody really is different. And the way people experience life is very different. Their reactions are very different. They have a very different set of burdens that they carry around the same kind of event. And not everyone, some people are frail. And I think my grandmother, she was being raised in a certain way. And she was very sheltered. People, she was very sheltered. I, I think that her nerves went really, I just, she, I think she completely decompensated after that. I really do. When you talk about the sort of post-World War II trauma handling, let's see, when, when you talk about Holocaust survivors, right, most of them did not talk to their children about it, even when those children were adults. Who they did talk to about was their grandchildren. And that was a combination of trauma, time, and not wanting, not wanting to pass on the trauma to their children, but wanting their families to know what had happened to them because survivors just wanted to live for a while first before having to deal with what happened to them because the pressure is always on the victim in, in those situations. Yeah. And so I get families, of the families that survived the race massacre wanting to be like, let's just move on to the next thing. Let's live. Let's try to be happy. We don't need to talk about this right now we'll talk about it later and then just on top of that the city of Tulsa and whoever stole the you know Tulsa Tribune headline from the microfish which I hopefully we find that someday that that's what I would like I want to know who stole that it's a it's a very interesting mystery because like they didn't, mysteries, right? yeah because they didn't even do a good job of stealing it like it's clearly stolen like it, they weren't being careful about it. they just wanted to get rid of it it's a totalitarian move changing yeah. history mm-hmm. and and this is what this is one of the lessons that we really have to be vigilant about today because with this what people are calling fake news propaganda is so persuasive and we see this QAnon business and all of that sucking people into these cult-like behaviors and who knows who's really behind all of that messaging it certainly is not anyone that wishes us well. And so this is very disturbing in that really clumsy, primitive way, the stealing of the microfish to try to, what, change the narrative or whatever. Nobody's going to know, telling people to them their faces that you didn't see what you saw. These kinds of 
mind games are corrosive. And if you were at my talk, I'm a big proponent of emphasizing that what we need is truth before we can even uh, think about reconciliation. And now we have conversations around your truth and my truth. There are objective measures and people have to be trained in the education system in discerning fact from fiction. And it's important. It matters. The Anyone can be susceptible, even educated people. But we have to constantly be aware that this messaging and what motivations are that, that try to steer people in these directions to, to start to be huge consumers of these conspiracy theories. It's frightening. Well, I think that's why it's so critical. Books like your great-grandmother's, the first-hand accounts that were able to survive so that even those who tried to destroy history, we have accounts of what happened, not just the official records that underestimated severely the, the damage, the casualties, changed what caused everything else. Having those are so important um, because it keeps alive what really happened. It keeps alive what the truth was. Truth. The, yeah. The aggressors are not always going to be like the Nazis who kept records specifically because they wanted to brag about what they'd done. The lesson people took from that was don't keep records. Again, Chris and I were both trained in primary document, like historical research, right? Those primary documents, especially about things that like this are super important. And so I'm glad that the book one is getting a official, real publication, but like it was published, but like independent, privately published, and which is not something most people know exists in America. So it's not, it was not an easy book to find. And so I'm glad, I'm glad the book is out. It is for sale. We will, of course, link to it in our show notes. Thank you. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Like, it is number I one mean, on the nonfiction uh, list. Uh, number one bestseller in Oklahoma. Excellent. All right. Yes. We just found uh, out a couple of days ago. Super excited. That's exciting. If yes, you can, get I mean, it at Fulton Books and otherwise we'll give yes. you other options. Yeah. Fulton Street Books or Magic, or Magic City. City. Or, or Magic uh, City. Was it bookshop.org? Just uh, not Amazon. <laughs> that's, that's what we're saying, people. I can go along with that. Even though I just got an Amazon package today, but I'm sorry. We do what we can. But not that's books. Right. We do what we can. Yeah. Not yeah. books. Always support local first if you can. Yes. Yeah. What do you move on to now? I imagine a lot of the last year or two have been about the com- uh, the publishing of this book, the visiting here, the centennial. And for me, you know, tracing my great-grandmother's footsteps, some of the places were she was leading up to the, her time in Tulsa and, and afterward because the, the trail does go cold. I have tried to, I'm trying to get some fellowships or some kind of a support so that I can do that. But more broadly, I am very interested in this notion of educating people about this and finding out how to do it and, and really actually putting together a program about how to do it, sidesteps, all of the nonsense about, oh, somebody's going to feel bad, this and that. And I, I would really love to to study some programs that people have. People in Germany learn about the Holocaust. They don't worry about whose feelings are going to be hurt. If this is something that's important to the republic, to democracy. It's true. And people have to take more responsibility for what their institutions do. And I'm interested in getting a little bit more specific about that because as we've talked about here, what are you going to do to move this forward, move these efforts forward? And sidestepping some of these disingenuous criticisms happens when you have a when you have a program that shuts that noise down. So back in the sort of 
hard pandemic. I don't know how we're going to refer to the time when lockdown, the majority of the nation. Yeah, the lockdown. Our last question would be to ask our guests, what are they doing to stay sane during this uh, lockdown period? So I guess we'll do a hybrid version of that, which was, are you still doing the things that you were doing during the lockdown? Sort of keep yourself centered and calm-ish during a still a very stressful time. There is no calm. There is only coping. What I'm trying to do is I'm just going to say it. Stop eating so much good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I spent a lot of time cooking and eating. (laughs) It has not been good for the three of us. My my grown children, we have a really big, pretty big house and we all have each have our own floor and we all quarantined together. My son came home from California where he was teaching. And so we've all been here since May 2020 and our pilgrimage to Tulsa was our first trip. And it was well worth it. We broke quarantine for that. And yeah, I'm pleased about that. They were like, we're so glad we came. We're so glad we came. And I am too. But we're back in the house. I'm waiting 14 days before I go around anybody. I am fully vaccinated. I hope people understand how important that is and not listen to the nonsense around it. But anyway, so. If if they're listeners to this podcast, they hear me yell at them to get vaccinated (laughs) every episode. So Absolutely. There is no other way right. for us. There's no way forward for us. No. The, there was just an article today about how we have to relearn how to get dressed to go out in public and how, as part of that, none of our pants seem to fit. And I was like, that's so true. <laughs> okay. So. I had to buy some new clothes to come on that trip. It was horrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, let's, let's, help, let's, help, let's help this economy get that's going. Right. Let's all I buy new clothes. <laughs> buy some more clothes. Buy some more clothes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Well, but so uh, anyway. the, the yeah, so the book is "The Nation Must Awake: My Witness to the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921" by Mary E. Jones Parrish. You know, published by Trinity University Press, available anywhere, and we will point you to the places we would like you to buy it from. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for yeah, taking time you. to talk with us today. Thank you. You guys are a lot of fun. Really super knowledgeable and compassionate, and I like that. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Annalisa. It was a lot more fun than I think Chris and I were expecting it to be. Please go and buy the book. The link's in the show notes. And of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And please subscribe and tell others who are interested in making Tulsa a more vibrant and inclusive place to live to subscribe. That is how we get attention. And of course, if you leave a review, we will read it on air, live. As always, get it done, Tulsa. And if you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, what's wrong with you? 